For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com. Okay, well, Alexa, we're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So Alexa, I would just love if you would share what you do for a living with our audience and how you came into that profession, because I actually think you maybe have the most interesting job of anyone I've ever met. Oh my goodness. Thank (laughs) you. Well, (laughs) so my background is in visual arts and in facilitation. And for the past 20 years, I've been teaching medical learners, including like students in medicine, nursing, dentistry, social work, as well as faculty, clinical teams, and like departments, how to transcend some of the dehumanization of their hospital culture and use the tools of artists and of great diagnosticians to really observe, listen to, hear, and co-create health with their patients. So I do a lot of teaching about this, and I do a lot of specialized speaking in different specialties in medicine, and also for the general public. And so how I got into it, so I got into it, I was always like a kid who was drawing and making art. And I always just like loved the human body and was really fascinated by the human body and loved science. And fast forward to when I was in my early twenties, I went to art school in London and I was actually on the first plane out of Boston to go to London, the first plane allowed to leave Boston after September 11th. So it was a very world rocking time. And I found myself in London, completely traumatized and lonely being like, what am I doing (laughs) making art? Like everything just had collapsed and shifted. And so I kind of went back to my love of the human body and human resilience. And I went to this incredible archive of medical images in London, the Wellcome Trust. And I started just researching human body and human resilience. And I started making a project about that in painting. But what I noticed sitting there looking at all of these medical images was I was like really disturbed by the way the medical texts direct the reader to look at the patients in the images. 
And I noticed it was so different from my training as an artist where you look and think for yourself and make meaning. And I could see all of this stuff in these medical images that were being ruled out that were potentially really relevant. And it unleashed in me a passion that I didn't really even know at the time how much I was carrying. But one of my siblings was very badly misdiagnosed as a kid. And it really took and cost our whole family, like her teenage years. And it was really very costly on our resources and and her life. And at times she was actually treated very badly by medicine itself. And so I kind of started connecting these dots in in that moment of noticing there's something really important about the way in which clinicians are taught to learn and see patients or not see them. And that the second and third order effects of that are really big. So shortly after that, I went back to Boston and I was doing a million part-time jobs. I was teaching at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and I was curating waiting room spaces at the Mass General Hospital and had a house painting company, and I was making art. I was doing all this stuff. But I connected with a group at Harvard Medical School, who was a team of students and faculty who were starting an arts-based course to teach observation and diagnosis skills. And at that time, that was 2002, there were already a few other medical schools, including University of Minnesota and Yale and NYU that were starting to like teach observation and art settings. So I teamed up with them and we kind of make a long story short, we co-created this course called Training the Eye, Improving the Art of Diagnosis. And Harvard was very skeptical about allowing us to pilot this course. And they said that we could only pilot it if we assessed if it was successful. And of course I was an artist, so I was like, well, it's immeasurable. Like the students will love it, but there's no way we could document that scientifically. But also because it was Harvard, there were a lot of resources and a lot of ambition. And the lead faculty, Joel Katz and Sharam Kushpin teamed up with an educational researcher, Janet Hafler, who brought in all of these graduate students helped us design a scientifically sound study with a control group of students. We collected data for two years. And what we found was that the student who took our class made 38% more observations on pictures of patients Mm -hmm. than students who didn't take the class. And they also had some really interesting changes in their language and like the way they described what they saw. They used more evidence. They got more speculative, less of that false certainty that's very dangerous in the Mm -hmm. misdiagnosis space. And so at that time, this was like my side hustle passion project. And I had a full-time job directing education programs at an art museum, but I started getting, we published this big study. We were on the front page of the Boston Globe. And I started getting phone calls from deans at medical schools and other museums that wanted to do this work. So I left my job and I started consulting and speaking and had the opportunity to learn about a lot of really interesting different kinds of issues in medicine to work with the humanities in. And so anyway, I can tell you more about it, but that's how I got into it. Yeah. So Alexa, can I just, I do want to get into more of that. I know a lot of our clients, our listeners are very much anatomical and teach, you know, around the human body. And that is also my background as well. When you say training the eye, like, are you talking about like physicians visually looking at a client or like a sign on the body and be able to identify better what is happening or lead them to ask better questions for a more accurate diagnosis? 
So all of that. So for that particular course, which is training the eye for teaching medical students observation skills. So that was very much and still is. I don't teach in that class anymore. I taught in it for 10 years, but it's actually been in operation for 20 and still going strong. But that focus is very much on visual literacy and the ability to like to help these medical students and future doctors really have confidence in looking at the patient at all, not going directly to the chart, Mm. to the screen, but actually having confidence, observing and taking the time to do that. Certainly noticing details, noticing different kinds of how rashes show up in different ways. And if you actually look at them closely, you can tell a lot about, you know, did it come from something inside the body? Did it come from an external irritation? Is it having like little blossoms that seem to be growing? Is it on the way out? Taking the time to actually connect form to function and just being the background for it was actually that since the rise of testing really and different Mm -hmm. kinds of technologies and farming out diagnosis to specialties that like internal medicine doctors and primary care, like they're getting less and less confident in even doing that. So, yeah, so it is about those very specific visual cues or noticing, like you're looking at, you know, you're coming in to talk about pneumonia or something, but did you notice like the patient can't like also has these other things, right? Right. That class is very much about those specific visual cues, but it's the whole can of worms of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Alexa, beyond that class, what are some of the other tools or systems that you're able to advise these professionals on? Like, how do you get the results with your work? Because you Mm -hmm. obviously have them and they're in demand. And why isn't this everywhere? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems to be on the rise, which is great. And it's certainly not just me. There's actually a huge community of different artists and art facilitators doing this work. But so the topics that I address the most in my teaching these days are first uncertainty, competence. So the concept of uncertainty is is a really important one in medicine. And uncertainty is actually like a really prevalent reality. Medicine is a space that leads with expertise. It's a knowledge economy. The Mm -hmm. value is about having different kinds Mm -hmm. of knowledge. Mm It's also a very defensive culture because there's so mm-hmm. much binding by insurance and it's a litigious, I'm probably not saying that right, culture. So it's both leading with expertise and then bound by defensiveness. And mm-hmm. students are typically underprepared. They're really good about what they do know and really underprepared in staying in the space of like things are gray, symptoms are not really lining up, things are vague, which is the vast majority of cases. And so if you look at a lot of cases gone wrong, where they usually come down to is like uncertainty handled poorly. And so I do a lot of teaching on just sort of the basic concept of uncertainty, as well as like the challenges, as well as like the opportunities that it presents, because it's also in uncertainty where things can go so well and where really the best of medicine can really get made in these interactions between caregivers and patients and families. And so that's one thing. And I actually teach an entire class on uncertainty at Brandeis University and do like sort of mini seminars based on that. Also teamwork in healthcare. That's a very big one. Teamwork generally, as well as diagnostic teamwork, because I've done a lot of study of diagnosis. So the space itself is a study in individualism, like the doctor trains as a doctor, the nurse trains as a nurse, the PA trains as a PA, the OT, and they all 
then are expected to work as a team, but they've never mm-hmm. trained as a team and they've never trained in being a team. And a lot of them have big attitudinal issues with one another that actually inhibit communication. And so more and more healthcare is waking up to that. And there's this book that just came out, The Power of Teamwork, that's, that's all about that. But really everybody has probably had an experience as a patient where they've noticed things could have gone a lot smoother if there was more of a shared picture of their own case. And so, so those are kind of the two big ones, but some patient experience. And again, I've, I've done quite a bit in the world of diagnosis, which is very specialized. And so I also teach teachers. I don't teach diagnosis or like the science of different diseases, but the collaborative art of co-creating diagnosis. I'm fascinated by how you started as an artist and then now you're teaching about uncertainty. Like, do you bring concepts of art into that or is this really a new whole skill set and thinking that you brought to both? It's both. So I have done a lot of my own research in uncertainty in medicine. And it's been just a passionate thing that I've followed. And I actually did a fellowship with the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. I was one of their first ever non-MD fellows. And I studied Mm -hmm. adaptive approaches to uncertainty in healthcare. And this came out of just like collaborating with a lot of different medical teachers and hearing them talk about uncertainty so much and noticing that like, doctors and students like really want to talk about uncertainty because it's the reality and there's like not a lot of space to do that. So that has come out of study, but the way in which I teach it and the experience sort of, I do a lot of experiential teaching and learning in my classes and that is all in arts experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I'm bringing in concepts of like how artists approach uncertainty or also the way in which uncertainty is approached in other fields too is really different. From medicine. Do you, do you so. have a business version of all this uncertainty in business? I do actually. So do you really? <laughs> I do. And there's, I've done some more less so, but there are some really interesting discussions about that. And so, yeah, mm, that's an offline conversation that we yes. definitely need to have. Okay. That. <laughs> Alexa, I'm so interested in this sort of multidisciplinary approach. And I think you're obviously an artist first and foremost, and that's what brought you into this space, but you're also now very much an academic. And so I have not been in the university setting for a decade now, but that was my interest as well, which was multidisciplinary learning and how it's going to require multidisciplinary teams to really solve the major problems that we collectively face. And I'm wondering, have you noticed over the last decade or two that you've been doing this, have you noticed that transition more towards that being an open-minded opportunity in the academy? Yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah. I think there's still a lot of work to do, but I feel so encouraged because it's at least recognized now. And especially as like, there's this sort of race between like robots and humans, like we realize our competitive edge is being collectives. And so, yeah, I've seen a huge turn and I think the younger generation as well, like they give me so much hope because a lot of this stuff that, you know, they're like, duh. (laughs) Yeah. Of course it's all connected. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot of the issue is like in the legacy system and sort of redesigning systems to better support that. A big part of my teaching is this methodology called visual thinking strategies, which is a mm-hmm. sort of how I run the arts experience aspect of teaching. And it's a very widely used facilitation method. And when I first trained in it 20 years ago, it was subversive. It was like there were art museum directors who were like, we never allow anyone to use this method because 
students need to be taught what to see and it's not okay for people to make meaning on their own. And it was really very much in the face of that thought system of we have an expert who tells everybody else what to do and see. Mm -hmm. And now the paradigm is, is going much more towards like, we need all perspectives to solve this problem. And so now it's just not subversive at all. It's very mainstream thing. So it's been really interesting to see that happen over the last decade or so. That's really promising. I'm so excited to hear that because I don't think, I mean, I do think there's this tension between developing expertise and narrowing and narrowing down your focus until you are the world's expert at whatever X, Y, Z. So then it's just, it's this constant challenge to try to see how that's relevant to anything else or connected to different things because you get so focused on the minutia of one little thing, because that's the only way to survive or thrive as an expert. Interesting. And, you know, it's not just, I mean, of course people need to study things, right. To learn more, we need that knowledge. It's not to say like, it's just more a, a general approach around understanding the objective truth versus like lots of different positions on truth and a basic respect and knowing one's own limits mm-hmm. and not Jenny, being ashamed about it. Jenny told me that part of your work is that, and I'm probably totally butchering it, but I would like you to explain it, that before physicians go and speak to a patient, that they look at art. Did she yeah. have that right? Did I tell me about I that? I hope I got that right. <laughs> or is that like super simple? It's like, I that's mean, not the, the not how version of what Alexa does. <laughs> no, that's okay. Before, like not necessarily like the second before, but mm-hmm. the teaching that I do, they are engaged in very deep and rigorous looking at art as a way to experience uncertainty authentically, but in a very low risk setting where the best asset is their own perspective and other human perspectives. And so I think Jenny might be referring to, we took this wonderful class together and I mentioned this time of when I I gave a grand rounds at a hospital and had the whole auditorium, you know, mostly doctors and nurses looking very closely at art and then making some connections between their experience as observers and the art and the experience of a complex patient case and how they might navigate that. Mm-hmm. So when you said just before, I just want to understand it so I can envision this. So you're in grand rounds. And when you say yeah. that they looked very closely at art, what are they actually doing in that moment? So we projected on the screen, a painting. So there's many different works of art that I use in my teaching, but I think this particular one is this, it's actually not a painting. It's a plaster freeze. That's like painting ish, but it's also sculptural, but it's called the wrestlers and it's on view at the museum of fine arts, Boston. I can send you the link. We can put it in the notes, but we all looked at that for about 15 minutes. 20 and were minutes. you telling them to like I was notice the curve or whatever? So, yeah. So I, I wasn't telling them what to see, but the visual thinking strategies facilitation asks what's oh, happening here. I see. I see. So they're there. Okay. And what more can you find? And so they, this room of, of a couple hundred people are describing what they see, putting into words, And this is an incredible work of art with like, it has so much complexity and it looks very simple, but it's widely interpretive and people say completely conflicting things. And like, they're all true at the same time. And Mm -hmm. the more you stop and like, look at it, you actually like what you're seeing right before you expands in real time. And so we had this discussion 
Then I made a link back because the painting itself is called The Wrestlers. But you can see wrestling, but you can also see like people sleeping. You can see lovers. You can see like this beautiful embrace. You can see a conflict and an attempt to separate. So we talk about the fact that if it's called The Wrestlers, if if they had known that, Mm. When they received the handoff, right? Like a patient is handed off. This is a 25 year old alcoholic with pneumonia. Like that, that handoff, they probably likely would not have seen all of those things. And they would have missed a massive opportunity Mm. to understand the complexity as well as hear one another's perspectives. And so in that particular case, I was connecting it back to the importance of very careful handoff language that doesn't pass stigma down into the patient's Mm. record and treatment. But following that, they went on with their day because doctors are crazy and they do grand rounds at like 7am. So it was very early. We did this experience. And then I was doing a lunch workshop and somebody came back and said, I was at your grand rounds this morning. And my first case was really complicated. And I went, oh, I am in uncertainty. I need to get somebody else to look at this together with me. And she pulled another clinician into the room and So she reported this because she found it useful to, in those times of uncertainty, first recognize it and take that pause and get another perspective. So I wish we could do that every single day. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So 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 is this, um, you teach them to make this a practice or does the work or the learning come from you facilitating them looking at a piece of art? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, it's both. So first there's what I'm teaching them to make a practice of are the use of what's called forcing strategies, which are known in the patient safety world to reduce error. So they are things like asking yourself, what's another way of looking at this? What am I not thinking of? Get get somebody else in with fresh eyes. So there's a lot in the diagnostic error literature about forcing strategies and really, really careful, masterful clinicians use them just taking a pause, like using language to really carefully suss out your thinking and, and, and invite the patient into it, things like that. So I'm teaching those, but the, the experience of looking at art and doing visual thinking strategies over time also has its own impact. So if we just did it once, you might go like, wow, like I saw a lot. I was impressed by what other people had to say. I was amazed by what I didn't see that I then saw but you might not actually like develop skill, but through continued exposure, and then also through learning the facilitation method itself, you would actually develop some capacities in visual literacy and language in listening. So it's both of those things. It sounds like life skills. Yeah. Like I don't, why do the doctors get this? this. (laughs) Yeah. There's some really specialized stuff and then there's some real just basic facts of life and how to communicate in a way that's respectful and going to get through those Mm -hmm. places where some people hit a wall or fall off a cliff Mm -hmm. and you need to stay connected with the patient and keep going into uncertain territory. So Alexa, does this have implications for public health as well? Or is it really focused primarily on one sort of doctor or team of doctors to patient work? That's a great question. I've frequently been told that this should be a program that lives in public health. And I actually don't know that much about public health, like compared to other domains of medicine, but 
medical harm is a public health crisis. And mm -hmm. we have never lived at such a time where we really have to just take care of our health because there are so many counterproductive forces, including within healthcare. Mm -hmm. And we have so many public health crises and medicine intersects with them. The big example is racism. That's a public health, that's a pandemic in and of itself. And medicines, like these issues of medical culture and its legacy of how it uses expertise to have power over versus power mm -hmm. with is huge, like starkly mm -hmm. apparent in health and public health. So I guess I would say yes. And there's probably a lot yeah. of different ways how and why. I do see this as a much broader way for us to all understand health better and be healthier together and create that understanding that health is something we create with the people around us and to be able to do that better. Right before we started recording, you mentioned that your work was highlighted in a book by Brian Goldman, who I have total like crush on, you know, I just think his work is just incredible. He's the host of a very popular CBC weekly show called White Coat Black Arts. And his work is so, it's like from the other side of the gurney, that's how he describes it. And it's so insightful as to what it's like to be a physician. And he does take into effect like the physician and the patient and his work is remarkable. And then you just like flash us a book with his name on it. So tell us about how it all came about and what it, what to, the power of teamwork by Brian Goldman. There it is. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Brian is really amazing. And he actually was one of the first MDs to speak publicly about error. He has a TED talk. It's over 10 years old, I think, but doctors make mistakes. And he's coming from such a place of humility and making transparent how the system works. So I was really thrilled that he covered visual thinking strategies and covered my work in the book. So the second chapter, actually in the introduction, he writes about like a mistake that he made in the context of his radio show, actually, and how he like hadn't heard something important that somebody had said, and that he actually writes about how he shut down and, but he got the courage to say like, tell me more. <laughs> and that he made the connection between that moment to a light bulb that went off for him in a talk that I gave where he was in the audience doing visual thinking strategies. In fact, on that wrestler's painting that I just mentioned. Okay. Yeah. And that he learned instead of like, well, that's dumb to be like, what do you see that makes you say that? And what more, you know, and that that was a doorway to helping solve that problem. The second chapter in the book is called appreciating art. And it's about mm. this approach and specifically linked to diagnostic teamwork, which is very near and dear to my heart because I mentioned my sister's story, but my sister, so she was misdiagnosed and the people who actually accurately diagnosed her when she was in her early twenties were a nurse and a state social worker. Wow. So it really speaks to the power of teamwork in collaborative mm -hmm. art of diagnosis. Well, wow, that's really, really cool. Yeah. So the book is great. And he also does a beautiful interview with Joel Katz, who I mentioned earlier, who was one of the faculty people in the Harvard course and Philip Yenowin, who is one of the co-authors of the visual thinking strategies method. Nurses are very near and dear to my heart. Actually, when I was born, my mom suffered a, a pretty catastrophic event in the process of the cesarean section that she delivered me by. And it turned out later that it was due to 
the doctor actually leaving, the surgeon actually leaving during the surgery and an implement being left inside. And the whole thing was actually covered up and the surgeon's friend like destroyed the record of it happening. Oh my God. This was back in the late seventies. And it was nurses who came to my parents and told them what had happened. Wow. So I feel like wow. my life story mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. just pointing you in this direction. This. Wow. Like, no right from birth. Wow. So I think healthcare really needs a book on teamwork. And I'm glad mm-hmm. Brian contributed to that. Oh, that's amazing. That really is. What a story. And where do you see this work going? I mean, it's obviously taking off. There's more and more interest and acceptance of this. Do you see this becoming a part of every hospital and every medical school moving forward? Is that sort of your big vision? I mean, work? when I'm courageous, that's my vision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's vision. It's, they say it's easier to move a graveyard than a medical <laughs> yeah, I would like to see. I think it, it is going in a lot of directions. And actually, mm-hmm. when we started the Harvard course, when we started it in 2003, there were four other medical schools that did something similar. Now, basically, every medical school mm-hmm. in the country, as well as other health professional schools, collaborate with art museums to teach observation. Wow. So that's like, I don't even do that anymore because that's being done really beautifully. Yeah. And there's applications and need all over the place. And healthcare is so complex. Like how you would do it with radiologists is very different from how you would do it with like <laughs> cardiothoracic surgeons. And so there's broad need, but I think there's two places I'm particularly compelled by. So one is training at the preclinical level and doing that in groups rather than in silos and then training educators. Mm-hmm. And there's so many educators who touch the diagnostic process. Like you could start with high school teachers, you could yeah. go with patients and parents. So, and the beauty of this work is that the more interdisciplinary and diverse the group is, the better mm-hmm. the discussions are. Oh, that's amazing, Alexa. I just thank you for sharing your story and your journey with us. I think it's quite relevant to a lot of our listeners and people in our audience who we have a heavy overlap in the wellness industry. And so I thank you. And I hope everyone reads this book and reads your chapter in the book and learns more about you and your work and follows your journey. So thank you for sharing that. And then before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you to share with our listeners a joy and a hustle. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now and a tool that can help our audience hustle in their career or business. Wonderful. I love it. Well, my big joy right now is the garden that I'm in the process of building. Oh, yeah. Yesterday I had 3000 pounds of dirt delivered to my house. So <laughs> nice. I cannot tell you how happy that yeah. makes me. <laughs> That's great. And I'd say the hustle, actually, I would recommend section four classes. So Jenny and I actually met taking a class on this incredible new platform, section four. And I have been helped in so many practical ways by the teaching there. I'm also super inspired by the way in which a really dynamic group of people is changing the landscape with this technology in education mm-hmm. because it's so reasonably priced for like classes that would you feel like you're sitting there in Wharton Business School with mm-hmm. incredible, incredible people and classmates. So I would, I would recommend that for a range of reasons. And if you join, you can see me on there because I will be <laughs> in the community for sure for a while. 
That's great. Yeah. Section four for everyone listening, it's an online business school and it's a startup and their mission is to democratize business school education. And so it's a great resource for a lot of more traditional training that those of us who are not in a position to go out for an MBA right now, we wouldn't necessarily have access to this kind of education. So it's a great, great resource. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And I'm so glad that we got to meet through that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Beginning of lots of great things. Yes. Well, thank you so much. These were incredible questions and it was so nice to talk with you. And Sandy, I love it that you listened to Brian's show. Yeah. Big fan, big, big fan. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alexis. So great for you to take the time with us. Appreciate it so much. Thank you. Hey, before you go, if you enjoy listening to our podcast and you know that your future involves teaching or coaching online, check out our Inner Circle experience. It's where we take these concepts, women in business, money, online business strategy, mindset, feminism, and help our clients take their expertise and transition it to an online offering. It's a one-year program with high-touch strategy and mindset coaching, online business courses, and the best community on the internet. To apply, head over to theinnercircle.works, fill out our short two-minute application, and if we believe you're a great fit, you'll receive access to a private advanced training on creating a profitable online business and all the program details. Go to theinnercircle.works to learn more.